Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario, and teaching fellow for church leadership at the Ezra Institute in Grimsby, Ontario. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your guest host, Andrew Robertson. I will be filling in for Chris Eelman for this episode of the podcast. I serve as the discipleship pastor at Harvest Bible Church in Windsor. This week we're addressing a number of questions that almost every Christian is asking. And our first question today, Aaron, has to do with persecution and the church in uh, present times. And it doesn't appear, some would say, that the church is being specifically targeted. So why resist? Why resist the government or any of the cultural notions unless we know for sure that we are indeed being persecuted? Yeah, well, this this obviously is a question that uh, many people are debating. So there's one side that seems to be pretty adamant that we're being overtly persecuted and targeted by the government. And then I hear uh, pastors and churches all the time say, we're not being persecuted. And this is an important question because many would say that if we're not being persecuted and we can prove we're not being persecuted, then there's no need for us to kick up a fuss about mm-hmm. what's going on around us. So there's a couple things for us to consider in this regard. The one would be, what is persecution? And I, I think what many folks are doing erroneously is they're assuming that well, if we compare the, the treatment that the government has towards the church with the treatment, let's say, God has towards or, or the government has before um, uh, towards small businesses. So comparing government treatment of church, government treatment of small business, they seem sort of commensurate. They're sort of equal. So if Adam Skelly opens his barbecue, they show up with police and tickets. If Aaron Rock opens his church, they show up with police and tickets. So how can we really say that we're being you know, spiritually persecuted? Well, this is a, a very horizontal question. It, it's, it's, um, it's a question that is um, being asked and answered by what I would say comparative. So we're, we're looking at the government's response to all these different organizations or institutions that are pushing back and we're trying to figure out, well are, well, are they being equitable? And if they're being equitable, then what's the point of using the P word, you know, the persecution word? I think there's a couple errors in that kind of thinking. Uh, but before I point that out, I, 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 I want to point something else out. And that is that there's no question about the fact that rightly or wrongly, deliberately or by sheer ignorance – Churches across our country have been the recipients of the most draconian punishments for violating the lockdown rules. No business proprietor has been thrown in jail for 18 days or 35 days, but it happened to you know our, our friends Tim and James in, in Alberta. Um, I don't know of any business that has received a $100,000 fine and threats of a year in jail for inviting people in for a one-hour meal, but I've received several of those. So there, there, is, there does seem to be a, a more of a punitive focus in their response to the church. But that aside, it seems to me that 
the if we just focus this debate on the question of whether we're being persecuted or not, we're, we're kind of actually being selfish. We're just kind of concerned about our own treatment. You know, are we being persecuted? Are are we being uh, targeted? Are we being assailed? And this, this is a very horizontal question. I, I'm more concerned about the offense of the government's behavior towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've said many times in this podcast and writings and sermons, the reason for this, and this is super important for people to really contemplate and lock this down if you're listening, the Church of Jesus Christ is an embassy, and it is exclusively under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as it would be a global incident if a foreign nation invaded the sovereign territory of any embassy that's on their turf— and took it over or fined it or charged it or shut it down. This would be a global incident. It is, it's it's a spiritually catastrophic event for the state to think that it has authority to shut down Christ's embassy, an embassy over which the state has a grand total of zero percentage of authority over. The state has no, I've said this till I'm blue in the face. I feel like I'm saying it over and over again, but it's worth repeating. The state has zero authority, past, present, future, over the worship and ministry of the Christian church. And so by closing down the church, what they're actually doing is they're persecuting Jesus himself. They're attacking the plans and purposes of God. So yes, there's persecution. We could debate whether it's deliberate persecution targeting Christians or not. I think there's definitely evidence there's a spiritual attack on Christians. But we could debate whether there's a, you know, um, a, a deliberate attempt by officials to target the church. Maybe that's the case in one jurisdiction. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just happenstance. Who knows? But there's definitely persecution being waged against Christ because his bride is being unjustly and uh, inappropriately attacked by a state that has no authority over it. So I think that that's critical. That's That would, by the way, that, that would focus... Um, focus our attention more on the the vertical uh, nature of this issue rather than the horizontal nature of this issue, which we often tend to spend maybe too much time thinking about. Do you think it's for the Christian church to be reactionary to persecution, or is the focus supposed to be more on doing righteousness? Well, we shouldn't be spending the vast majority of our time, uh, you know, protecting our own butts, so to speak. Uh as much as we're not doing an enemy a favor by allowing them to attack us because we're we're allowing them to participate in a in a sinful act so if we're if we are being attacked there's nothing in the scripture that just sort of suggests we'll just roll over and take it that's the the, the christian ethic on an on an individual level with individual offenses there's the you know t- turning of the cheek there's the carry, carrying the soldier's backpack not one mile but the extra mile those teachings of Jesus that we need to suffer a, an amount, uh, a degree of personal offense, and we understand that. But we also have to recognize that we are, we are Christ's ambassadors, and we are agents of justice and righteousness. And part of our job as a Christian church is to represent the values and purposes of our King, Jesus, into a lost and dying world. So if we see injustice, tyranny, um, uh, inequality, uh, inappropriate discrimination, these sorts of things. Yeah, the the Christian church is not just running around with a message about how to get to heaven. 
we're also incarnate beings. We have a creation mandate. We, we're, we're part of a culture, and God has called us to represent him as his, not only his image bearers, which is the, the creation mandate, but also as his ambassadors, which is, uh, you know, the, the kingdom mandate for the Christians, the, the great commission mandate to represent his purposes and will into a lost and dying world. All right. Our second question has to do with uh, the hope that has been given due to vaccination rates being high. Uh, it seems to appear that uh, that is the case. The numbers are up as far as right. people being vaccinated. And uh, we've been told that this is going to help reopen the country. Um, so the, the question comes, and again, uh, people are discussing, why not just be patient for a little bit longer rather than show some kind of resistance to the government? Yeah, so the, the question is, I, I guess, is essentially along the lines of, uh, you know, why not just get everybody vaccinated or as many as possibly, you know, can get vaccinated and then we'll move on. Well, actually, this is what our politicians are telling us. They're essentially telling us that if we want to avoid more lockdowns, more devastation to the economy, which, by the way, I would argue they are thoroughly responsible for, but they, they won't admit that. They're still chalking it up to this virus, but I think there's some mismanagement and some um, uh, inappropriate responses the government are, is is uh, guilty of. But we're, we're basically being told by our premiers, by our prime minister, that the way forward is vaccination. The vaccination is our messiah. It's our way out. But if you listen to the narrative closely, you have ample reason to be suspicious and to not trust that claim. If we think back to last year, let's take masks, for example. We're told don't wear masks, then we're told wear masks, then we're told wear two masks, and now we're told, well, even if you've got the vaccine, you're supposed to wear masks and social distance. People have been told to get the the, the vaccine and then they switched it up and you can mix and match your vaccines. Then you get your second vaccine. And now they're talking about a third vaccine. And then they're talking about ongoing vaccinations. I think it was the um, one of the health directors in, what was it, um, Switzerland? I think it was Switzerland uh, today that uh, was reported as saying that some of these lockdown measures he expects to last for upwards of 15 years. So you're getting all these mixed messages from these supposed experts, right? These paid technocrats. And what we're seeing is the goals are continuing to shift. So if you if you hit 70%, we'll open you up. Well, actually 80%, now it's 90. And well, now there's only 10% or 15 or 20% left in a jurisdiction. So now we got to get everybody vaccinated. It's like, come on. The, the goalposts continue to shift. And if for some unthinkable by some un unthinkable uh, you know, stroke of divine providence or luck, if you will, even though luck has no place in the Christian vernacular, we were to be able to look forward and be absolutely assured that if 70 or 75 or 80 or 90% of the population was vaccinated, this would all be said and done. Well, maybe that would be a different story, but the reality is that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, the government keeps changing the the goalposts. And so that should, you know, concern us. But I also want to stress that in biblical theology, 
Just as you and I will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad, you know, this is this is Paul's teaching to the Corinthian church that we are ultimately responsible for ourselves, and this spills into this whole uh, historical doctrine of bodily autonomy. That I'm an individual, you're an individual. We live our lives together in community, but I'm responsible for myself, and you're responsible for yourself. And so, Christians, even Christians that have a strong belief in the efficacy of the, the the vaccine should be among the first to say, no, we reject the idea of coerced vaccinations, uh, forced vaccinations, v- a vaccination by award or vaccination by threat. We should be the first in line to say, no, this is not acceptable. So all these pastors that are posting their vaccine certificates on Facebook and Twitter for everyone to see, it would be good for them to put a little tagline in there and say, you know, I got my second vaccination, but I have complete respect for and I will defend the rights of those that don't feel comfortable with it. That would be a Christian response. So there's two there's two things to answer that question. A, is it really true that vaccinations are going to get us out of this? It certainly doesn't seem to be moving in that direction. And secondly, not everybody's going to get vaccinated, and that's fine, and nor should they. People have the right to make decisions this is the first time, by the way, in human history where this, this you know, strange notion has come into play that if I get a vaccine and you don't get a vaccine, suddenly my vaccine is ineffective. Like, what kind of a vaccine is that? If you're telling me the way out is to get a vaccination, but it's intrinsically dependent upon 100% of everyone else in the world getting the vaccination in order for my vaccination to hold up, that's not a vaccination or what you, you call that. So it's, 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 it's insanity. And we also need to remind ourselves, we have not seen at any point, not even under lockdowns, the mass deaths that have been predicted and prophesied about over and over and over again. So we, we have some things to worry about, but we have far less to worry about than the media thinks we should be worried about. Yes. And uh, in line with listening to the government and so on. Uh, the, the third question has to do with that idea of resistance to government edicts and what mm-hmm. the scriptures have to say about it. When is it righteous and when is it unrighteous um, to resist the government? Romans 13 seems to come up a lot these yeah. days. That yeah. seems to be the text of uh, disagreement and, uh, and obviously hermeneutical issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, when is it righteous? When is it unrighteous to resist the government uh, when it when it sends down its edicts? Well, Romans thirteen is actually fundamentally about the authority of God over all things, including over governing authorities, because the the state, the governing officials, are declared to be God's deacon. And other places in Scripture, we know Christ is declared to be the Lord of the Church, and God is the Lord over all creation. So. Fundamental to Romans 13 is a reminder of the absolute sovereignty of God, even over the highest, most powerful king in the world. It is not, and it would be foolish to interpret that passage as saying that somehow human kings have authority over Christ's church. I mean, how insane would that be? That human kings, that Caesar has authority over Christ's church, that the church of Jesus Christ 
is being called to submit to every idea, every notion, every whim, every edict of governing officials. I mean, that, that's that's an insane interpretation of that text. Rather, we need to think of the government's authority as a circle, a sphere. They have an assignment from God, and that assignment is limited. Their assignment is to take care of public justice. And this is why they carry the sword, which is a symbol of justice and punishment. This is part of our doctrine of penology, of punishment. They are responsible to punish the evildoer and reward the righteous. That's their job description. Their job description doesn't extend into every aspect of life. And it certainly, most certainly, does not extend anywhere into the worship and ministry of the Christian church. So we have um, you know, repeatedly uh, you know, t- taught that as well. So when it comes to resistance, it's very simple. If the state transgresses its sphere of authority, I have zero obligation to obey them. So the state has no authority over my marriage. They have no authority over my family. They have no authority over my church. They have no authority over your business unless in any of those spheres of life, you are acting like a criminal. You're, you know, you're, you're trying to kill people or you're, you're, stealing or embezzling money. So we, we, we think of um, in, in, in modern political thought, and we, you know, we live within these systems, so we tend to just buy into them. We have this notion that the state is one giant circle. So Canada, let's say, it's a, it's a state, it's a geopolitical state. And inside that state, this, this all-knowing, all benevolent, all-controlling state, we have families running around and churches running around and businesses running around, but we're all sort of under the state. This is called statism in political theory. And biblically, that's idolatry. This notion that the state, the family, your marriage is under the authority or somehow in the realm of the the, the state and, and, and therefore responsible to submit to them in every way, shape, or form. That's idolatry. That's false teaching. Rather, it's better to think of us as living in a in a in a geographical area, and, and the state is responsible for for overseeing public justice. But within that, I'm responsible for my marriage as the head of my home. Uh, husband and wife are responsible for their family. Pastors and elders are responsible for the church. So whenever. Whenever someone steps outside their circle of authority, they can be resisted. So if I if I show up at Andrew Robertson's house knocking on the door and, you know, Andrew, this is how you have to feed your kids today and this is what you can do and this is what you can't do, you don't say, oh, well, he, he's the lead pastor. I guess I better, you know, do what he wants me to do. You say, hey, man, just a sec. I know God has granted you authority over a local church in keeping with the rest of the eldership. And, you know, you're welcome to speak into my life, but you don't have authority over my family. You don't have authority over my marriage. You know, you are responsible to God for that. That's your stewardship. I'm not responsible to make your marriage work or raise your kids for you. I'm not responsible for you to make your business work or for you to make, you know, my my marriage work. So we have all these spheres of authority and we need to stay within those. So we, we're, we're perfectly permitted to resist authority Um it's not rebellious at all because rebellious suggests that you are sinning. It's, it's setting up a boundary and saying, I'm sorry, but you do not have authority in this sphere. And that's what we're saying. We're basically saying to the government, 
I'm sorry. You know, thank you very much for your advice and your edict, but you don't have authority over the church. And not now and not in 10 years, not in 50 years, under any circumstances, plague, war, or famine, are we going to permit the state to have authority over the ministry and worship of the Christian church? Yeah, that's good. And it kind of leads into the next question about um, churches physically gathering. Obviously, that's been the issue mm-hmm. uh, of resistance um, over the past number of months. Uh, so it's a straightforward question. Uh, I know that's difficult for you to be straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> but is it a sin? Would you call it a sin for churches not to gather physically? Well, in Hebrews 10.25, we have a, a clear... Uh, injunction from our Lord that we are not to forsake the gathering together of believers as some are in the habit of doing. So any habitual suspension of God's people gathering for worship is flat out and unequivocally a sin. No, No question about it. Not to mention the fact that by not gathering physically, you then violate several other scriptures by necessity. You fail to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You fail to baptize new believers. You fail to lay hands on and ordain new elders. You fail to engage in the fullness of church discipline. Now, what I wouldn't want people to lose out on here, miss out on here, is that we're not just arguing that, well, there's certain things a church has to kind of be in one's presence in order to do. Because smart people are going to think out, think you know, they're going to kind of splice things and dice things and think, yeah, but, you know, if we can get better, better technology, there's probably ways of, you know, accommodating for these challenges, whether it's Zoom church or maybe we technology develops, we can have virtual reality church or something like that. You know, there's limitless technologies that might develop down the road that people would say enable us to do everything we want to do. It's just we're not physically in one another's presence. And what's what's the loss? I would remind my listeners that there's a little bit of Gnosticism in that. Gnosticism is a historic problem, kind of a a heresy, a false teaching that invaded the church. And uh, not to be overly simplistic, but Gnosticism is essentially sort of this downplaying or denial of the validity of the physical and an upplaying and an accentuation of the spiritual, of the intangible. So the notion is that which is tangible, that which is physical, that which is material, that which is incarnational is is either bad or evil, or it's just not necessary, or it's not important. And what really matters is the spiritual, right? So as long as we can still have a spiritual impact through online sermons or a spiritual impact through online communion or a spiritual impact through self-baptisms, it doesn't really matter that much. Uh, This is like a dualistic notion. We are incarnated beings. And yes, it's true that we can be separate from one another for, for periods of time and do okay, but not for very long. I mean, Adam's loneliness was a problem day one of creation. And so God created Eve. Uh, It was day six of creation, but day one of his creation. And this is a problem. And the spirit of God, time and time again, manifests himself in, in the presence of God's people when they gather. And, you know, even as you and I are sitting across this table from one another, 
one another. There's something different about this and earthly. There's a blessing in this that it can't be found if I'm just looking at you through a screen. Yes. So um, the church, the church, first of all, cannot be a church by definition without gathering. That's what the word means. doesn't mean you can't take a week's vacation now and again, but the, the, the emphasis there in Hebrews 10, 25 is this, it's really an observation that some were in the habit of doing this. And that's what the writer's speaking out again. So yeah, if you get the flu, you get COVID-19, stay home and recover or whatever. But to habitually be absent from incarnational presence in the body of Christ, the gathered church is a sin. Uh, and, and if it's not a sin, then I'm not really sure that anything's a sin because we could just apply that same fanciful hermeneutic that seems to be applied to Hebrews 10, 25 to all other passages. Well, you know, when God says do this, he doesn't really mean do this. When God says don't do that, he doesn't really mean don't do that. I mean, throughout all of Christian history up to the last year and a half, Christian people have understood that Hebrews 10, 25 is commanding God's people to gather for Christian worship. And you know what's interesting about this, Andrew? If you think about it, when God's people gather, even when the world hates them, a lot of people are concerned about testimony, right? It's better not to gather because the world will hate us. When God's people gather, even under persecution or plague or war or famine, there is a sense that we are declaring our absolute allegiance above and beyond every earthly power and circumstance to the sovereign Christ that is our, who is our King and Lord. This is scary to the world. This scares the world. This doesn't make sense. I mean, these people are lunatics, but it declares to the world and to the heavenly powers that observe us that our allegiance first and foremost is to our eternal king. And, you know, pardon my language, but it's like come hell or high water, we will continue to gather and we will worship him regardless of the consequences. Yeah, that's good. Um, and in line with that, it's it's uh, it has led us, I know, as a church, um, into the crosshairs of political issues as well. And um, um, we have been engaging in discussion on these issues as well. And so the question comes: Why engage? Why should the church and should the church engage in politics um, and speak out on behalf of? Um, small businesses and others in the community who have been uh, persecuted or have suffered as a result of COVID-19 and uh, government edicts and so on. Why should the church engage in politics? Should the church be in any sense political? Why not just solely focus on preaching the gospel Um what is the church's response to that? What should the church's response be? I, I think this is a great question, and it's one I've thought a lot about. I also observe very carefully how people frame up their words on social media and how they preach the various texts of Scripture. And in general, among Reformed and Evangelical people around the world, Christian churches, Protestant churches that are you know have a high view of Scripture— we were very concerned about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're very concerned about, you know, we want people to know we are born in sin. We are desperately lost. We will die in our trespasses and sins. We're dead in our trespasses and sins 
currently. We will spend eternity in a, a Christless, um, lifeless hell if we do not repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. That's a key word, him alone for our salvation. And he has paid for our sins and the cross at Calvary and shed his own blood for the remission of our sins. And there's when we exercise faith in that, by grace, he converts us and we regenerate and made new, et cetera. That's kind of the essence of the, the conversion message. And because that's so important, uh, you know, we have this notion, well, if, if that's what matters the most, really, it doesn't matter what happens in this world. Like it doesn't, politicians come and go and wars come and go and famines and plagues come and go. And, you know, they they affect us and they concern us, but- why not just preach the gospel and focus on that? So we have, you know, well-meaning people that will say things like, you know, pastors just just preach the gospel. Don't don't get involved in politics. Don't speak out against injustice. Don't speak out on behalf of small business owners that are losing their shirts. Now, we do need to be careful that we don't fall into what's called the social gospel which the church has slipped into in the past, which is to say, well, now the eternal message doesn't matter. And instead, we're just going to focus on feeding people soup and getting coats in their backs in the winter and building them affordable housing. And we, we become social workers in society. That's, that's an imbalance as well. It's better for us to, to think of our lives and the world within which we live as being completely under the lordship and kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is not just the God of eternity. He's not just the Lord of eternity. Christ is not just the Lord of heaven. He's also the Lord of heaven and earth now. He has beaten the devil on the cross. He has declared his lordship and kingship. He has conquered our greatest enemy and he is king now. He's ruling now. He's not waiting to rule. He's not waiting to be coronated. He's the king now. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords now. And he has been for all of time. So back when the Lord created the world, I mean, he declares his kingship and lordship right out of the gates. And, you know, in the Genesis record where we have our creation and we are commissioned not as kings, but as his stewards, as his ambassadors. And we have all these, you know, cultural norms, gender and stewardship and, uh, worship and all these things presented to us, obedience. These are these cultural norms. And and we are to go into the world and represent and steward the world, which belongs not to us, but to God on his behalf. We're to represent him in a physical, incarnational, present tense world. Now, a lot of nasty things happened in the fall of man and we mess up all the time in that regard, but throughout Scripture, it, look at the, look at Israel. He's he's calling them back to represent him, to represent him in the world, mm-hmm. to be different from the Ammonites and the Babylonians, the the Messianic kings. You know, the, the King David is supposed to be a theocratic ruler, ruling the world, the nation of Israel, but by extension, the Gentiles were to come and see the light, ruling the world on behalf of God. There's this th- rich theology. In Genesis, uh, in the life and example of um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, uh, Samuel, King David, etc., even Daniel, there's this rich theology of representational leadership. 
These people understood, yes, there's an eternal life to consider, but we're representing the purpose and values of God in the here and now. Then we get into the Gospels. We have the Great Commission, but we don't just have a Great Commission to go into the world and seek and to save the lost and baptize them. Jesus is constantly talking about engaging with the cultural world around us. He's, 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 he's pointing out the widows, the orphans, the children, the, the destitute, calling people in positions of power to account for lying and twisting God's word. The Apostle Paul did that too. He challenged the social order. He challenged Caesar. He, he, he challenged corrupt rulers. He leveraged the political systems around him. So this notion that we're just, this world's not my home, just traveling through, waiting to get home to be with, with Jesus in heaven. Who cares what happens around me? This is not a biblical uh, worldview. We are called to be stewards, not just of a gospel message that helps people to get to heaven, but we're called to be stewards and representatives of God's purposes and wishes and will in the here and now. So you don't have to be a politician to be political. Politics is just sort of the, the, you know, the, the governmental structures that guide us and, and a few other things as well. And we're to speak truth to the political structures. We're to speak truth to the legal structures. We're supposed to speak truth to family and to marriage and to, to all of culture so that people might hear God's word, God's laws, and surrender themselves to him. E even if they don't get saved in the process, and we want them to, it's still the right thing to do because creation needs to acknowledge that they are not God. And if we just sort of turn our, our um, back on the, these, this creation sort of kingdom mandate that God has given to us, what we're actually doing is we are being complicit in idolatry because someone's going to rule them. So we're being complicit in idolatry. So there's nothing, there's, there's nothing wrong. In fact, not only is there nothing wrong, there's, a, there's, there's something wrong with not getting involved in the, the political structures of our world. I'm not talking about the church is a charity becoming a political organization or anything like that. But Christians as a whole need to engage on all levels of society so that people might see and benefit from Christ's kingly rule. Yeah, that's good. Would you say that our eschatology influences this? I, I mean, I've heard people say to me, well-meaning Christians say, oh, this world is just a sinking ship. Yeah. Um, so in the Christian church, there is within Orthodox Christianity – there's room for those with more of a pessimistic eschatology, and there's room for those with more of an optimistic eschatology, those that would see that things are going to go downhill catastrophically, and there's just, you know, there's, there's going to be absolute destruction before, um, you know, the second coming of Christ. And there's others that would say there's going to be uh, a golden era leading up to that, a period of renewal. So this, this could depending on that, what eschatological system you um, adhere to, this could cause you to say, well, if you're optimistic, well, then I want to contribute to that. Or if I'm pessimistic, well, I'm not going to contribute to that. But I, I would suggest that both those with an optimistic eschatology and those with a pes pessimistic eschatology, regardless, on principle, on principle, not for the purpose of the outcome that you want or don't want, but on principle – Fight for the absolute supremacy of Christ over culture, over kings, over family, over law, etc. You fight for that. Like this, this notion, if, if you have a pessimistic eschatology and then you're like, well, I'm just going to throw up my hands. No, you don't do that in other areas. You still preach the gospel. 
knowing that some will not listen, some will not be converted, some will ch- chastise you, persecute you, run you out of town. So in 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 some respects, while there's re- while your view of eschatology is relevant to your response, what's more relevant is that all Christians who subscribe to the absolute lordship of Christ over creation should be fighting for his purposes and his kingdom rule to be manifested in this world. And we also know too that history kind of goes up and down, rises and falls. So let's let's suppose that one had a pessimistic eschatology. Well, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't fight for righteousness in the here and now because there might be a couple high points before we get there and you might be used by God to contribute to those high points, to a, a rise in, in, in appreciation for Christ's kingly rule. Likewise, if you have an optimistic eschatology, but you're in a low point, doesn't mean you're wrong either because you, know, you just might be in a low point, but that might be leading up to a high point that Christ is going to use you to contribute to. Yes. So a, a lot of the issues we've been talking about today are issues that have divided churches over the past number of months as well. Um, And in our current cultural climate, there are a number of issues in which it almost seems like the discussion has um, shut down between Mm -hmm. opposing sides. Yeah. And uh, so the accusation could be made, well, this is all Dr. Aaron Rock's fault for being so (laughs) bold in uh, rhetoric um, what would you what what are your thoughts on this kind of an accusation has your bold rhetoric contributed to the division um has it enabled discussion where how would you respond to that well i it's true that there's division in the church and it cuts both ways when there's an issue this polarizing the actions and words of one side are necessarily going to affect and impact the decisions of the other side. So if you are of my persuasion uh, and lay people in other churches hear my words and maybe resonate with it, yeah, it's probably going to cause some flack, some angst for other pastors who maybe have to speak to their people and correct from their understanding my falsehood. Likewise, the decisions of those that oppose me have affected our church. You know, we've had people leave here as well and go to their churches online. Um, And we've also had uh, officials use the precedent set by pro-compliance churches to validate and justify tickets and fines, et cetera. So there's no way around that. But to... To the to the allegation that that bold rhetoric is is somehow a contributing factor to divisiveness, I think that's um, if I could be so bold, <laughs> kind of lame actually. Yes. Uh, the scriptures call us to be good, calls us to be righteous, calls us to be loving and kind. The scriptures um, don't call us to be nice. They don't call us to necessarily speak in hushed tones. They don't call us every time we preach or confront or say something to always have a perma smile on our face. Uh, in the ministry of Jesus Christ, we see a variety of emotional responses to the 
to the lies and circumstances that he was confronted with. Sometimes we see a lot of compassion out of him, uh, which we all should have. Other times we see some pretty raw, righteous anger out of him. But one thing that Jesus was always good at is speaking the truth. He always spoke the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. He doesn't lie, doesn't hold back. He speaks the truth. And one of the commitments that I have made is, as best as I understand truth, I speak the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And you know, one of my mantras is that creatures don't apologize to other creatures for what the creator has said. I do believe in unapologetic teaching and preaching. I don't, I don't feel any need to apologize to anyone else if I'm preaching directly from or applying the word of God into culture and life and circumstances. So truth necessarily divides. I mean, you look at Paul, when Paul had to confront the Judaizer, Judaizers and, and, and their um, heresy in Galatians chapter one, I mean, he, he actually sort of warned them they might be at risk of hell. Uh, I, I would I would do the same. I would warn any pastor or Christian out there to seriously think beyond, is there a virus? Isn't there a virus? Is there a pandemic? Isn't there a pandemic? Should I get vaccinations? Look, this is very simple in my view. Do you subscribe to the absolute authority of the Lord Jesus Christ over his church? Yes or no? And if you do, then you're responsible to obey him at all costs. And you are disobeying him when you close down the church and God's people don't gather and you do not meet in person and you do not celebrate the ordinances and you do not exercise church discipline in one another's presence. Like, do we really have to, um, it, it's shocking to me that that's not uber clear. Regardless of what's going on around us, you know, t- two weeks off, okay, whatever. Folks, month after month, over and over again, and those of you that may have friends uh, or colleagues that have died from the virus and that sort of maybe fed your own fear or caution, you need to think beyond your circumstances. Like, get out into the world, have conversations with people, and, and what you'll discover is that for every odd person out there that suffered tragically from this virus, there's a dozen more that have suffered from all other sorts of consequences as a result. And if you don't know those people, but you only know people that have died from the virus, you're not a pastor because you're not engaged in culture and society and the people around you. People are suffering more than I even know because every once in a while I hear a new story. I'm like, man, I never thought that was going to happen. I wasn't aware of that. So um, when, when a person speaks, whether it's myself or someone else, when a person speaks with clarity and boldness, in Christian culture, and especially in Canadian culture, where we, we really like to be nice, um, yeah, it does rub people the wrong way. In fact, funny story, I had a, a friend visit with my wife and I. He grew up in South America. I had him visit with us a few weeks ago. And um, he had never actually heard me preach in person. But he was in the church, came down, and we were, he, I preached in person. And he said to me over lunch, he said, um, were you born in Canada? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's like, oh, I've never heard a Canadian preach like that. And we kind of had this little chuckle, right? Because, I mean, there's a lot of Canadians that preach like I do. But per capita, 
Canadian pastors tend to err on the side of niceness and err on the side of ambiguity and, and err on the side of a more of a collaborative approach to truth, more of a hints and nuanced approach to truth. In fact, one of the seminaries that I um, studied at here in Canada, Bible College, taught me a lot about how to handle God's word. But one of the things I almost had to retrain myself is they're so nuanced in every every discussion that you can come out confused with you don't have an opinion on anything because everything's nuanced. There's always you know it's, you know you're you're sort of taught to be like incredibly cautious and caution is important in our handling of the word but so cautious that you're confused that's not that's not helpful so at some point your mind has to you know digest and arrive at a conclusion to things and and i guess in perhaps the way i tend to communicate or some of my you know colleagues dr boot pastor rayom pastor tees and others maybe we we are in the minority and that can be offensive, but it's not, it's not meant to be. We're not out trying to hurt people. We just, we believe in the truth. We speak the whole truth, nothing but the truth. It brings clarity and life to some and understandably it offends others. And that's not our goal, but sometimes truth offends. So that would be my response to that. And if, if there are areas in my life when I've erred, I'm very confident that the Lord will reveal those to me and I will myself confess my own sins. How many of this, how much of this, pardon me, um, has to do with the seeker-sensitive mentality mm. that seems to be in the modern church? Would you say that impacts this? I think you're onto something there. I'm very concerned about not putting unnecessarily unnecessary roadblocks up to people being exposed to or hearing the gospel. And you know that, you know, as a pastor in our church, we we don't expect people to dress up to come to our church or to carry a big black Bible with a gold, you know, gold gilding on it and a ribbon and to sort of jump through hoops and loop. We're very opposed to legalism, but we're very interested in God's law. And um, in a post-Christian culture, there's been a lot of energy poured into trying to figure out how to re-reach the culture because we came out of a Christianized culture into a post-Christian culture. So the last 30 to 40 years, I would say the dominant discussion among Christians is how do we get lost people back into contact with the church, Christians, et cetera. So we, you know, we run all our evangelism explosion classes and we learn the four spiritual laws and all that kind of thing. And we discuss how to remove unnecessarily unnecessary barriers to church life. And much of that I think is good. It's profitable because we do, we don't, the vision, the, the Christian vision is not to look like someone that just stepped out of 1850, right? That's, there's nothing sacrosanct about 1850. So in our church, we tend to be more modern-esque in our, shall we say, packaging or approach. But where that can become problematic is if people then, apply those same principles, those same pragmatic principles to truth and say, well, we probably have some people in our church that struggle with um, homosexuality, so we're not going to touch that one. Or we're going to soft pedal it so much people don't really know what we're saying. Or we have divorced people in our church, so we're never going to touch that subject. Or we're never going to talk about money because that will run people out of the church and sort of 
pour salt on the wound. You know, that's, I used to be part of a church and all they were about was money. And after a while, we have nothing left to preach about except for the most basic stuff like love. And then even that will be twisted to mean something that it doesn't mean in scripture. So yes, I do think that subconsciously many leaders in Christian churches, especially in our province and country, have buckled because they're, they are actually more interested in appealing to people. That's their view of what a faithful witness is, appealing to people and not offending people than they are conscious of the calling of God to champion Christ's absolute supremacy over everything, including his church and their physical health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Well, one final topic to speak into today. Sure. And it has to do with people listening to their doctors, their physicians. There is a lot of information out there. I think we've seen physicians coming down on both sides of the issue of COVID and um, responses to it um, globally. So people tend to have a lot of faith in their physicians yeah, due to education and experience and so on. Should we trust their advice in all of this? And do you trust their advice in all of this? Well, I, I do have a lot of respect for you know, anyone who is, um, has spent a lot of time learning and thinking about their vocation. I, I know you have a, an engineering background and, you know, as you've kind of mentioned little things in your former career, it's like, oh, that, that's interesting. I don't know anything about that, but it's kind of fascinating. In the life of a church, you rub shoulder with engineers and nurses and teachers and physicians and whatnot. And um, it is interesting to realize that there's many people out there that have expertise and knowledge that I don't have. And I have knowledge and expertise that they don't have. Um, so yeah, I, I have respect in, in general for that vocation. And I have friends that are physicians and I, I respect them and I love them and I trust them primarily because they're Christians, but I also... Uh, feel very comfortable. I actually did this this week, called a physician and, and um, asked him a medical question. So I feel very comfortable doing that. But I don't just carte blanche trust every physician. And if a physician doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ and is not an astute student of God's world and doesn't look at their treatment of the human body and medicine from a Christian perspective, I I do second guess. I do question. I'm not as quick to believe. And why wouldn't I? The same medical establishment that would probably very competently give me a heart transplant if my heart blew out, the same medical establishment, not necessarily the same physicians, practices medically assisted suicide in our country, which is evil, um, performs abortions in our country, which is evil performs gender reassignment surgeries in our country, which is evil. And so there, there does need to be some discernment here. And even among epidemiologists, which are the physicians of the day, the ones that people are listening to, we should be concerned 
when the CPSO and other governing organizations are threatening to censure or discipline those that disagree with the narrative and are only allowing those who believe in the current social narrative to speak. But let me just say this very simple statement, which maybe brings some clarity to it. In general, okay, so in general, I would feel comfortable getting good advice from my physician, assuming they're not being coerced under normal circumstance. If I go to the physician and I have a little problem and I ask him, under normal circumstances, I wouldn't question his advice. I'd be like, okay, that, that sounds good. Ready to go. Thanks. You're the expert. But I'm not hearing from my physician in that respect. I the most most of the medical advice I'm getting today is from the prime minister, the premier, they're not physicians, the technocrats, the paid physicians who are in the political system. So they're not exactly objective in their advice. The media, the mainstream media who's promoting the narrative will get they're not saying, "Oh, let's report on how many vaccines and let's report on what people are saying." They're actually overtly advertising, you should get the vaccine. They're the media. They're not reporting. They're telling. And then we got all these celebrities running around like Piers Morgan, you know, telling people they need to get the vaccine. They're stupid and irresponsible and he's using nasty words against people that aren't vaccinated. I couldn't care less what the prime minister, the premier, the local media personality, a paid technocrat, or a celebrity thinks about my medical health. I couldn't care less. Stop talking to me. I'm not listening to you. But that's the circumstances we're in. So when people say, don't you trust physicians, what they're actually saying is, don't you trust the prime minister, the premier, the chief medical officer, you know, and all these other folks that are using all their platforms. Well, of course, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a smart enough guy. I'm going to question that because I'm thinking, okay, this is not where I'm, this is like getting, uh, uh, this is like me giving baking advice. Go to my wife for that. She's awesome at that. But don't come to me for baking advice. Um, it's like me getting advice on how to fix my car from, you know, a biologist. It's not their area of expertise. So it's not really even true that those of us that are questioning the narrative aren't, just, you know, we just, we just don't trust the estate. We don't trust the scientists. We don't trust the physicians. No, we just don't trust ones that are being, looking to be reelected. Or, or who are receiving their paychecks directly as a result of their service to, let's say, the province of Ontario. So I am skeptical. I'm not, um, I'm not just, a, maybe, maybe my listeners won't like this, but I, I'm not just a carte blanche uh, anti-vaxxer. I'm very cautious, though, about this kind of stuff because I see it against the backdrop of the culture within which we're in. You know, I, I posted an, an article today on my uh, social media that was written back in 2014. Jonathan Edwards, what an incredible man, you know, preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He trusted the medical establishment of his day and was inoculated against uh, smallpox and died as a result of it. A godly guy. So godly, well-intentioned people can believe in the science of the day and benefit from it or die from it. So it's not about, well, do you believe in science or not? What era of science? Do we actually, are we so arrogant as a society to think 
that all the science we have today in 2021 is absolutely perfect and it will never, you know, in the future change. People could be looking back at us 100 years, 200 years from now and think, what a bunch of fools. And, and I'm sure they will. On some, uh, Will it be on this issue of the vaccines? I have no idea. But every, every um, generation of humanity thinks they have it right. And some of what they teach will be right and some will be wrong. Christians think, should be thinking more, a little more broadly and realizing, learning from history and learning from the fact that we are human, we're fallible. Some of the things that everybody believes is wrong and eventually no one will believe it. And sometimes the majority is right and the minority are being foolish and other times it's the other way around. So exercising discretion, not being driven by fear. No, 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 no. Not being driven by fear, not being driven by rebellion, not being driven by unproven conspiracies, and not being driven by coercion. All, all of those things are bad motivators to follow the medical advice of the moment. So that, that's kind of how I have unpacked this in my own mind. Well, thank you, Aaron, for your clarity today. Well, we hope you found this episode informative and that you'll be better equipped as a result to champion the absolute lordship of Christ over all of culture. You can also find more Leadership Now podcasts on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network, as well as CJXC Radio. For those who are interested, there is also a Fight, Laugh, Feast conference called The Politics of Sex coming up in Lebanon, Tennessee, which Aaron will be a part of along with several well-known speakers and panelists. Go to flfnetwork.com to register. Also, make sure to join us again next week for another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock. God bless. And remember that the mission of God is the glory of God, and you are very much loved.